I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Mark chapter 2, and we will continue um, our series called Expectancy. We've been journeying verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and I would encourage you, if you've missed some, you can go online, you can listen to the podcast, you can really get up to date as we progress through the Gospel of Mark. And as you turn there, I would imagine that most here um, have come to realize that whether we're sitting in a service, we're going to see a movie, you're reading a book, that wherever you're at, you bring your perspective into something. Whenever you read the Gospels, we bring our perspective into the story. In fact, I have found that because if you've read a story many times over, there's a perspective or an idea, a picture that you have arrived at in your mind. And so when you read the story, oftentimes your mind will go and fill in those details as you read through it. Um, if you if you have movies, you'll go to see if there's an actor that you like or don't like in that movie. Your perspective of that actor could impact your viewing of the movie, or it really becomes the filter that you read through. Well, it's with the the idea of perspective that we look in Mark's Gospel, chapter two, this morning, and I want to share with you a message uh, titled "Jesus's Perspective Changes." everything. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man on the mat, lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that it was that it knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them Why are you thinking these things which is easier to say to this paralyzed man your son your sins are forgiven or to say get up take your mat and walk But I want you to know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins so he said to the man I tell you get up take your mat and go home He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The story tells us that Jesus returns home. He returns to Capernaum, and while he's there, he immediately goes back to what most would assume is his disciple Peter. It goes back to Peter's house, and if you'll look, if you go online, you can find pictures of what excavations have uncovered as most likely being Peter's house, and there's a lot of different assumptions, and if you will go into Israel or go into this area, a lot of times you'll visit somewhere that We'll have something marked saying this is a specific landmark associated with this thing in the Bible. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's more of just a tradition that's been passed along. But oftentimes many think that the home that you would see if you go online or if you've ever been to to Israel to see, that the home you would see is actually legitimately the home that Peter had. And it's a very large home. He's a fisherman. He owned a business. He had people working for him. Made a a good, decent-sized living. And so he had a decent-sized home. And so what we see is he 
most likely returned, Jesus returns to Peter's home. And it says that the crowd grows is so massive. Not only does it fill the home that people can't get in the home, but it also tells us the crowd is so large, you can't even get near the door. Now, there's a crowd that has gathered in around this home, filled the courtyard that you can't even get near the door. But I find interesting is what Jesus does when he first has the crowd. It says in verse number two, it says he preached the word to them. There's something about the first thing that we do that says a lot about our priorities. If you wake up in the morning and your first thing, the moment you wake up, the moment your alarm goes off, the moment someone wakes you up, if the first thing you do is you grab your phone, you check the news, you check your email, you check your social status, you check how many likes you had from your previous social posts or your picture you put online or you check whatever that might be, that says something about your priorities. The first things that we do tell a lot about our priorities. And it says the first thing Jesus did when he had this crowd was he preached to them. He preached to them. He delivered God's word to them. When we look through Jesus's life and the gospels and all of the gospels, we see that there's this systematic pattern of he wants to stay in step and in tune with the purposes of God flowing through his life. The purposes of God is to declare the truth of who he is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus begins to preach to him. Not only was, is that true with Jesus, God's desire was to reveal his message through Jesus, but that's the same through us. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 tells us that God's intent is that now through his church, through you and me, not just this setting in this room in this moment, but the church collectively is, the church collectively in the Bible, when it speaks of the church, is speaking of every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ in every nation across the generations. But then it's made up of the gatherings of believers that gather in assemblies much like this and different churches, different buildings, different denominations, much like this. And buildings like this and congregations and churches like this are made up of individuals of you and me. And his desire is that our lives, our priority would continually be to reveal Jesus to the world, to declare his truth. The church is never intended to be about programs, about money, about building, about personal preference, about projects. Those are all good things and contrib- can contribute to the church. But our primary focus, our primary purpose should always be the lifting up of Jesus Christ. It should be letting people see the truth and the freedom that are found in Jesus Christ and the life that he offers each one of us. And it's in the midst of this story that we have this amazing uh, story uh, unfold in front of us. The story says the crowd has gathered around the room, around the building. They're so, so full you can't even get near the door. And it says in the midst of this, we have a group of friends who have a man who's been paralyzed and they bring him to Jesus. We really don't know much about this man's uh, case. We don't know how he's paralyzed. We don't know. There's sometimes in the Bible it will tell us that this person's been been sick or been uh, paralyzed since birth or hasn't been able to walk or, or, or how many years. We really don't know anything about this man. He could have been paralyzed from birth. He could have had a major accident that crushed his spine, broke his legs. We don't know. All we know is he cannot walk and he has a group of friends who care enough about him that they bring him to Jesus. 
Oftentimes I've pictured this when I've read this story that you have the four men and you have the man who's brought to Jesus. But the story tells us there's actually more. It says there's a group of friends, a group of men who, and four of them are carrying this man to Jesus. So you have a group of men committed to getting their friend to Jesus, committed to getting their friend to the one person who could possibly give him hope and transform his life. And as they arrive at the house, they encounter the problem we've already discovered. Jesus' popularity continues to rise. Individuals have gathered around, and they can't get the man to him. But what we see is they begin a different journey of getting their man to the feet of Jesus. And homes in that day, really to understand the story more, we have to understand homes in that day were not like the homes that we have now, not like a, with a peaked roof or a closed off roof, but rather homes in that day, they really sought to utilize every space and every moment of that home. And so not only would you have the inner chamber of the home with the different rooms, the different places where people would meet and gather, Jesus is in inside their teaching. You would have a courtyard that people could gather in. But then also the home would have, in Jesus's day in this area, a home would have a a flat roof. It would have a set of stairs that would go from the outside to the roof and a set of stairs that would go from the inside to the roof. The home was used, the, the roof of the home was used for entertaining. It was used for perhaps the homeowners at the, in the, the cool of the day could slip up there and they would spend time in meditation, spend time in prayer. They would, could have a meal up there. They, if they had friends come over, they could take them up in the evening and entertain on the roof. It was a place that was used for significant uh, relationship building. And so these men were up on the roof, and I would imagine, I think it's safe to assume that they checked the stairway into the house and found that there really was no way down. It was not possible to get this man down the stairs to Jesus. And so someone in this group of friends had this incredible idea. Let's tear through the roof and get this man to Jesus. Now, I think it's safe to assume that Peter, the homeowner, was not in that group of men. He did not have that idea. And so these men, they begin to tear at the roof. And I've heard some describe the the roofs uh, in the homes in this time and in this area as just being a few tiles that are moved and they're able to lower him down. But that's not really how the, the roofs were designed. There was tiles that was there, but then there was a layer of clay or of mud or something that had been able to be hardened enough to hold things in place. And then underneath that was a layer of timber that could support people being on the roof. So it was a very significant, very sturdy roof. And so these men set to work to tear a hole in the roof. Try to picture it for just a moment. Picture it happening here right now. I'm talking, I'm teaching. I'd imagine like, just like in Jesus, he was teaching. People were drawn to him. The crowds were there. There might be a little bit of a murmur, a little bit of talk because of all the people were there. But Jesus is teaching. And as he's teaching, all of a sudden, someone who's standing not too far from Jesus, because the story tells us this man was lowered down in front of Jesus, that someone standing there in front of Jesus begins to, like this dirt, there's something falling on me. And he begins to look up and he begins to see the light break through and perhaps the hole gets just big enough and all of a sudden the man's head pokes down. And he begins to poke down, make sure they're in the right spot. And then the man shouts back to his friends, yep, we've got the right spot. And they begin to dig more and tear more and more dirt's falling, more things are coming down. People are, by now, people are quiet. 
If, if someone was being, a hole was being torn in the roof right now, at some point, the focus would no longer be here, this moment, it would be there, what's happening in the roof. And the hole continues to get bigger. You can hear the chatter on the roof over whatever's happening in the room. And people are realizing these friends are talking, coordinating. Who's got which corner? Who's got the ropes? Who's got the hole big enough? Is it clear enough? Are we in the right space? And all of a sudden, a mat begins to descend and lower down in front of Jesus. Now, just lowering the mat down alone is, a, is an interesting feat. If you were to take a mat and you have the, the four corners are tied off and you've got a man who can't walk, who's already paralyzed, the last thing you want to do is drop him several feet. I mean, I guess if you're going to drop a man several feet, it's no better place than at the feet of Jesus. But you're going to drop, you, you need to make sure you're lowering him so he doesn't fall. And so these men are coordinating. I would imagine someone's calling out to lower him. So this man is slowly being lowered in front of Jesus and he finally gets there. And in that moment, as that man is lowered and it's clear that there's someone laying on this mat and there's a desperation to get this man to Jesus, can you think about all of the perspectives that fill that room? Think about all of the perspectives in that moment. Something we're going to look at in just a few moments, but the story tells us that Jesus knows what's in the hearts of the religious leaders. But I would imagine some of them are thinking, can you believe this guy? He actually thinks Jesus is important enough to have friends lower him down in front of him. Or perhaps there's some in the crowd and some are like you and I. Someone begins to cut in line like, hey, wait a second, I've been in line here. I'm, I'm waiting. How dare you try to get ahead of me to get to Jesus? Or others in the crowd are thinking, why didn't I think of that? You know, why didn't I think of that? I could have someone lower me down. I'm right in front of Jesus. I have his audience. I'm right there. Capture the attention. I'm sure a number of things. Can you imagine what Peter's thinking? It's his house. He's thinking, who's going to pay for that? Or even Peter's wife. Not only is she thinking, who's going to pay for that? She's thinking, who's going to fix that? My husband's a fisherman. There's a reason he's a fisherman. But it's clear. It's like, he, this, is not, this, this is not a good thing in my roof. And I think of all of these perspectives merging into this moment, but I think it's the perspective of Jesus that captures us most. It's the perspective of Jesus in that moment. You see, I have found that when I go through life that there is never a shortage of perspectives and there's never a shortage of individuals wanting to offer their perspective. Something that I've shared with uh, different ones before, but in my office I keep two files. I keep an encouragement file, and I keep what I call a nasty gram file. And both of them give different perspectives of my life. And I keep them there. I don't pull them out and read them, but I keep them there. And I see them in the, the drawer, and I remind myself with the encouragement file, I remind myself I'm never quite as good, or I, rather I remind myself I'm never quite as bad as I might think I am. And then I keep the nasty gram file to remind myself I'm never quite as good as I think I am. But I find that there's always perspectives being offered. But I have found that the most grounding, the most life-clarifying, the most freeing perspective to live by is Jesus' perspective. Jesus has a perspective of your life. He has a perspective of this man's life. He has a perspective of this story. And so I'd like to share with you, I think, four specific things that we can see from the story from Jesus's perspective that he sees in this man and he sees in our life. The first thing Jesus sees is our faith. 
Jesus sees our faith. I find it incredible and really revealing that Mark notes the first thing Jesus sees in verse 5 is it says he sees their faith. He sees the faith of the men who are lowering this man down to Jesus. It doesn't say he sees the crowds. It doesn't say he sees the religious crowd. It doesn't say he sees their criticism. It doesn't say he sees any number of things. He sees all of those. But the thing that stands out to Jesus first, or really stands out to Mark first, is that Jesus sees their faith. And I think just as much as what Mark records is is important to understand is what Mark does not record. Mark does not record that Jesus discerned their faith. He doesn't say that he felt their faith. He says that he saw their faith. He saw their faith. Their faith was being put into action, much like James would write later in James 2.17. It says that faith without action is dead. He saw their faith. And the thing about their faith is that it really was, their faith was what I think some would call disruptive. Their faith is what some would probably call reckless. It was what some would call crazy. It was powerful. It made others sit up and take notice. It challenged the status quo. Their faith was not a plan B. Their faith was not a fallback. Their faith was their action plan and they put it into action. What does Jesus see when he looks at our faith? What does he see when he looks at your faith? Does he see a faith in our lives? What type of faith does he see in our lives when we profess to follow him? Does he see a faith that goes against the status quo? Does he see a faith that we choose choose to live by day by day, the steps of faith that we may take, the, the steps that no one else sees? He sees those. He sees our faith. Does he see your faith? Is it, does it challenge others? Does it challenge others to really up the level in which they demonstrate their faith, to take steps of faith, to live by faith? Or is it more compartmentalized to a Sunday morning, perhaps a Wednesday experience? What does Jesus see when he sees your faith? I think just as convicting to think about that Jesus sees our faith that it can be convicting to think of areas that perhaps we lack in moving in faith, perhaps areas that we lack in, in stepping out in faith, but just as encouraging is that he sees where you do step out in faith. I think of Pastor David in the offering just a few moments ago, and for some that may have been a step of faith to give, something no one else around you would have seen, but it was a step of faith. God sees that. He honors that. Perhaps it's at your workplace and there's been a step of faith or in your neighborhood or something you've been praying and thinking about and you're stepping out in that faith. God sees it. In fact, he sees our steps of faith when no one else sees them. He sees our steps of faith when they've been discarded. He sees our steps of faith when, when, when others have looked down on them. He sees our steps of faith because they're meant to honor him. What does he see when he sees your faith? He's always looking. He's always looking, and the Bible tells us in Hebrews eleven six that our faith matters to him. So I would encourage you this morning, be encouraged because Jesus sees your faith. He sees the faith in which you live. He sees the faith in which you, the steps you take. He sees your faith. The second thing Jesus sees in the story that I think we can, we can learn from is that Jesus sees our hearts. 
Jesus sees our hearts. Verse 8, it says immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit, this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Jesus knew their hearts. He was looking at the religious leaders and he could tell. He could see what was happening in their hearts. He knew what was taking place in their hearts. It's, it's really interesting in this story, really in, in Matthew's account of this story. It happens in each of the Gospels. In Matthew's account of this story, it says specifically that in their hearts, they're entertaining, the, the religious leaders are entertaining evil thoughts. It's interesting in this moment, in this story, that you have all of these people coming together and you have some whose hearts are filled with faith. You have the men on the roof. You have the man being lowered in front of Jesus. You have some who are come who are hungry. They're drawn to hear what Jesus says. Earlier in Mark chapter 1, we find that Jesus is teaching them in a way that they're not used to. There's an authority. There's a power within them, and they're hungry. Others are coming with hearts full of expectancy. They're believing Jesus is going to do something. They're expecting for him to heal, to set free, to deliver. And in all of those things in this moment, we have some whose hearts are filled with evil. That he sees our hearts. He sees the hearts of each person sitting in the room, just like he sees every heart sitting in this room this morning. As he looks into our hearts, everyone here would be wise to remember that as we look in our lives, he sees the hearts. He sees the priorities of our hearts. He sees the things that captivate our hearts. He sees the things that our hearts trust in. He sees the the things that, that we're afraid of. He sees the anxiety that you wrestle with. He sees the fears that hold you back. He sees your heart. He sees inside of your heart. Look with me if you have your Bible. You can look with me in Psalm chapter 139. Psalm 139, speaking of our hearts. Verse 1, it says, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. It's just this understanding that God knows us inside and out. It goes on to say there's no darkness within us that he can't see. There's no part of our lives that are not exposed to him. He sees our hearts. He sees the content of our hearts. He knows what's there. But then as you read through the Psalm 139, the beginning says, God, you've searched me. You know my heart. You know the content of my heart. You know what's in my heart. You know my struggles. You know where I'm at. But then look in verse 23 and 24. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. He begins in the psalm by saying, God, you know my heart. And he closes the psalm by saying, God, show me my heart. Look through my heart. It's this invitation to say, God, you see what's happening in my heart. You see the root issues in my heart. Would you reveal them to me? Because if we'll ask him, he'll show us the the things that are taking place in our hearts. A verse that's been standing out to me recently is in Matthew 5, 8, in, in the Beatitudes, as Jesus is teaching. And Jesus says this, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That tells me that if in my life, or perhaps in our church, or in our community, that I'm not seeing God do as much as I would like to see him do, Perhaps the first place to look is not what do we need to do differently in church or what do we need to do differently in our community engagement. Perhaps the first place we need to look is we look into our hearts because it says the pure in heart will see God. So I say, God, look in my heart. 
Please show me, are, are there things in my heart and in my life, that, are there impurities that keep me from seeing the full measure of what you're doing in me, that keep me from experiencing all that your Holy Spirit desires to do? Are there things in my heart and in my life that you desire to deal with? Several years ago, a friend gave me a copy of this book. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. Just a small little booklet. It was written in the 1950s. And it's written much like a, a little parable. And the story goes as if... Um, Jesus is standing at the door of an individual's home and he opens up the home, he opens up his heart and he invites Jesus to come and to take up residence within. This is that he begins with Jesus right in the entryway, right in the living room and they begin to talk and converse and Jesus begins to be a house guest, a permanent house guest there. And as the conversation goes, the, the, the homeowner begins to take Jesus room by room through the house, or really through his heart, and going room by room, recognizing the things that need to be dealt with so that Jesus truly is center and full in this individual's heart. He visits the study, and as he's in the study, which really, or the library, which really represents the mind, he says, I stood in the library, and for the very first time as I stood there, I looked at all the volumes that I keep on my shelves, the volumes representing the thoughts and the things that we, we, we've invested in. And he says, I looked at the volumes on the shelves in my life, and for the first time, I'm standing there with Jesus examining, and I'm coming to, he says, I'm coming to a place realizing there are things there are volumes that I've been keeping that are too impure for the eyes of Jesus. He says, I begin to go and allow Jesus to clean out the shelves. And he says, I look at the pictures I've been keeping on the wall and I've come to realize that they're not consistent with my new house guest, with the new person who has taken up residence in my home or in my heart. And he continues and he talks about in the mornings, every morning he gets up and he finds that Jesus is waiting and, and waiting in a place ready to meet with him and to talk with him. And over time, the busyness of life gets going and he keeps going and he's rushing out the door to work, rushing out the door to his commitments. And he said one morning on his way out the door, he peeked in, he hadn't been stopping in and he recognized in the room that Jesus was still there waiting. And he said, he poked his head in and he said, Jesus, have you been waiting here all these moments, all these morning moments to spend time with me or for me to spend time with you? In reality, I've been busy coming and going and Jesus said, of course, because I, I told you I wanted my desire was for relationship with you and to spend time with you. And, and then Jesus says this. He says this to the, to the homeowner. He says that, he tells him, he, said is, he says, the trouble is that you've been thinking of the quiet time of Bible study and prayer as a means for your own spiritual growth. This is Jesus speaking to this individual. He says, that's true, but you've forgotten that this time means something to me also. It's a desire for Jesus to have full access to every part of our heart. And the journey in this homeowner's life comes to the place where he realizes, he says, I've, as much as I try to clean up my house or my heart as best as I can, he said, I reached a point where I realized that the best move is not to just, just make Jesus a permanent house guest, but rather it's to sign the title over and just give him complete control. And he said, then as I gave him complete control, he began to clean up the areas and parts of my heart that he saw that I didn't see, the things that needed to be dealt with that I hadn't given to him. And it really is this, this little parable, this little journey of saying, my heart is intended to be fully committed and surrendered to Christ. Every part, every area, not little secret compartments or habits or things of who we used to be, but rather completely fully surrendered, full access to him.
And I would encourage you, I, we picked up a number of copies They're at the Welcome Center if you'd like to grab one. And we were able to get a limited number of copies. Um, and they're there. We have a number there. I encourage you to stop by, grab one. And then if we run out, uh, we have a, a sign up there. We'll get more and we'll have them in next week. But grab one of these and take it and read it. Just read it in your devotional time, 28 pages, short little devotional. But it's reminding us that Jesus' desire is to have full access, full control, complete access to every part of our lives. It's much like the song that the worship team sang just before I came up. It says that Christ's desire is that he is our heart's obsession, that he is our first and only in our lives, that he desires complete and full access. As I was thinking about this and again referencing that God's been dealing with me about just that that purity in heart, And that's what he's looking for in our lives in this journey of a complete and full surrender of our hearts to him. I was thinking about it much by often on my my drive to and from the office to home, I'll pass a number of of car dealerships. And I was thinking about as I drive past a car dealership, if one day I were to pull in and I were to walk up to the dealer and I were to say, I'd like to purchase this car right here and I'll pay full value right now and just write a check or give them the cash or whatever it would do to do it. And then he says, hey, that's great. Let me go sign the papers, get the title, give you your license plate, and you'll be on your way. And he goes, he does a few things and comes back to me, and he hands me the license plate for the car, and he says, there you go. Have fun. And when I go to get in the car, he says, no, wait. I'm giving you the license plate, or I'm giving you the hubcap, or I'm giving you the windshield wiper, but not the whole car. Even though you paid full price, you get this much. I said, but I paid for this much. He says, no, but you're going to get this much. So, but I paid for everything. He says, no, but you can just have this much. Maybe next month I'll give you, I'll give you another wiper blade. How's that? I'd be sitting there. I'm thinking, you're absolutely crazy. I just paid full price for this. I want everything. When we don't give Jesus full access to every part of our hearts, it's kind of what we do. He says, I paid for everything. You say, but you can have some. He says, no, I want it all. He sees our hearts. He sees every heart that's sitting here right now and He wants full access. And there are things in our lives that hold us back and keep us from being everything that Jesus intends for us to be. There's freedom in many lives that you've dreamed of and longed for in areas and struggles of your life that 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 freedom can seem so distant, so unreal, so far out of touch. And Jesus is just saying, just surrender that part of your heart to me. And when you give that part of your heart to me, I will guide you in the steps to find the freedom that you need and the life that I've intended for you to experience. He sees your heart. He sees each heart that's here this morning. And he knows everything that your heart needs this morning. Thirdly, Jesus sees what we need most When you look at the story, as the story progresses, the man is lowered down in front of Jesus. He's there. He's in front of Jesus. And and the first thing, this interaction that takes place is rather interesting. In fact, I'd have to assume that the friends on the roof and perhaps even the man on the mat in front of Jesus, I would have to assume there's an element of them that's really thinking, um, Jesus, I think you just missed what we came here for. I think you just missed the moment because the man is lowered down. It's obvious he can't walk. And the first thing Jesus does is he doesn't physically heal him. He forgives the man of his sin. 
That it almost seems like Jesus totally misses his moment. There's been this grand entrance. The room is quiet. The room is silent. All Jesus has to do is to tell this man, get up and walk. And this, this man who is lame, who can't walk, who probably most in the community knew he could not walk, that this man would then pop up and rise up and there would be a great cheer and people would be excited for what Jesus has done and the religious critics would be quiet and it would just be Jesus's moment. But instead, Jesus, seeming to miss the moment, doesn't physically heal the man at first, but rather instead forgives him of his sin. Again, picture perspective is everything in this story. So picture these men on the roof, these friends on the roof, they've just lowered Jesus down and they can't quite hear because they're up on the roof and Jesus is in this room. And so one of them's there and, and he's, he says, wait a second, I did I think Jesus, I don't think he said walk. I think he said, you forget, your sins are forgiven. Wait a second, I can't hear. Guys, be quiet. It sounds, like, it sounds like Jesus didn't heal what we've just asked him to do. Just totally misses the moment. And to them, it would be like, it would, or to them, it would be like for you and I, if we were to go to the doctor today, and let's just say you've mangled your arm, it's hanging half off of your body, and you were to walk into the doctor and you're saying, here's my knee, doc. And the doctor looks at your finger and he sees a hangnail, he clips it and says, hey, go ahead, you're good. You'd be like, uh, Doc, I think you missed it. I think you missed what I came for. To them, that's what Jesus has done. He has totally missed the need. But see, Jesus sees what we need most, not what we most want. He sees what we need most. And so he meets this man at his greatest need. He could have healed the man. The man could have gotten up and walked out and it could have been done in seconds. The, the critics would have been silent. They would have been done. They would have had nothing to say, no debate with Jesus. But instead, Jesus healed the man's greatest need first. The man could have been physically healed and left with his greatest need still intact. But instead, Jesus sees the real need and meets that first. And friends, this morning, you might be here and you could be here because you, this has been your church for 50 years. You could be here because you're newer to State College Assembly, you've you connected, you're enjoying what's taking place, and you just enjoy being here. You enjoy what God's doing. Perhaps you're here with friends. Perhaps this is your first time or your first time with us for a while or whatever number of things that brought you to this moment. Whatever that need is in your life, perhaps that, great, that need that you're seeing is not the greatest need that Jesus sees. Perhaps the need that's not being met or appears to not being met is because there's a delay in that Jesus wants to meet the greatest need first. Sometimes the biggest answer we need is not the answer we think we need. You could be here this morning and if you're not and haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that is your greatest need. That is your greatest need. You could, your life could be a financial mess. Your spouse could have walked out. Your children could hate you. None of those would be your greatest need. Your greatest need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is always, first and foremost, our greatest need in life. Perhaps your greatest need this morning is not the answer to the problem, but trusting Him in the journey to the answer to the problem. In Psalm 23, the psalmist, he's writing and he's talking about the Lord being my shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need or depending what translation you says, it says, I, I lack no good thing. But there's this, there's this one verse in the 23rd Psalm where it says, he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. 
He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. Not necessarily a comforting place to be. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. The shadow of death being, meaning so close, as much like I think the Apostle Paul would write in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, we felt the sentence of death hanging over us daily. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. But I find is it doesn't say he meets me on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say he leads me over the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't mean that he skips me around the valley of the shadow of death. It says he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. That tells me that at times we're going to journey through seasons and spaces and challenges in your life that you don't understand. You're in a place you don't know, a place you wish would come to an end, a need that you think needs to be fixed. And he says, do you trust me to lead you through this? Do you trust me to lead you through this, even though you don't see the other side, even though you don't see the answer, even though you don't see how it's going to be fixed, and there's not even a sign of the answer on the horizon, do you still trust me enough to follow? Our greatest need is not always our greatest need in the eyes of God. Perhaps it's willing, a willingness to trust Him in the midst of the journey to the answer you're looking for. And then the last thing, just quickly, I'll give you this morning. Jesus sees our future. So first, Jesus sees our faith. Jesus sees our heart. Jesus sees what we need most. And lastly, Jesus sees our future. Jesus sees our future. In the story in the, with this man, as we look at his life and he comes to Jesus, Jesus does, in fact, heal him. And, and it concludes in verse 12. Since he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. It says he got up, or literally it, the, the literal translation says he was raised up and walked out in front of them all. One of the things that I, I've mentioned this many times was we've journeyed through this, but one of the things that I believe points to the consistency and the accuracy of the Gospels is the lack of the author's ability, a willingness to, to, um, to really overtell the story. They just tell it how it happens. It says, man got up and walked out. But think about it. This man has not been walking probably for years. He's lacking muscle. He's lacking strength. So not only is there healing, if, his, if perhaps he had broken bones or broken back, there, were, there was a popping of joints going back together and a popping of, of bones being healed and mended in that moment, a, a straightening of legs. I would imagine the, the muscles in his legs began to inflate, much like when you blow air into a balloon. There's this, this creative unleashing of Christ's healing power in this moment. And as he's releasing this healing power and this man is being absolutely healed in front of these people's eyes. And he gets up, he's literally, he's raised up and walks out in front of them all. He takes his mat, I can just see him just taking his moment, just whistling, rolling up his mat, slinging it over his shoulder, yelling up at his friends on the roof. Hey, thanks guys, I'll meet you out front. Cuts through the crowd, walks out, something he's not done in years. But in that moment, his future's been changed. Jesus saw his future, but he didn't just see his future by, by his healing and restoring his legs and restoring his, his back or whatever it was that hindered his, his ability to walk in that moment. Because Jesus first said he, he forgave him of his sin. In the Gospel of Mark, this is really the, the first time that Jesus begins to give a full picture of what he's about to do. 
This is the first time where Jesus begins to make it clear, listen, there's a great price that has to be paid for what's just taken place. The sin's been paid, the healing's been given, and there's a price that has to be paid for. There's sin that has to be forgiven. There's a healing that has to be paid, that has to be atoned for. Jesus saw the man's future. Jesus saw his future. He saw the cross in the future. And he sees your future. He sees your future even when you don't see it. And something that I've found, and this really relates back a little bit to understanding and trusting him in the journey, but specifically when it comes to our future, there is not a space or a moment in your journey that's disconnected from what God's doing. It may feel like it's stalled. It may feel like, like you're on hold, but there's not a moment that's lost. He never wastes a season. He never wastes a moment. And he redeems it all into his future that he's unfolding in your life. And so this morning, let me encourage you as you're here, you may not be lowered down on a mat through the, from the roof in front of Jesus or in front of a healing team or in front of a prayer team, but Jesus still sees your faith. He sees your faith as you're sitting there. He still sees your heart, your hunger. He still sees the needs in your life and he still sees your future. He cares about every detail in every part of your life. And it's merely a willingness to trust him in the journey. God, I pray in this moment that individuals be encouraged that you see exactly where they're at. God, there are not, there's not an individual in this room that has been not, not been lost to you. That you don't see and don't know right where they're at, God. That they may feel their moment is isolated and disconnected, but God, you're with them in that journey and in that moment. And Lord, I just pray right now, God, for just an encouragement to settle into every heart and in every life as they lift their eyes up to you, God, to see and know that you are faithful and that you are trustworthy as they focus their hearts completely and solely upon you.